Welcome to The How of Business with David Begin and Henry Lopez, the podcast that offers practical advice and tips on how to run and grow your small business. The How of Business helps aspiring entrepreneurs and small business owners achieve their definition of success and overcome challenges that get in their way. This podcast series focuses on the everyday common business issues, challenges, and opportunities that face the small business owner. So here now are your hosts of The How of Business, David and Henry. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez, and I have with me Dan Englander today. Hi, Dan. Hey, Henry. Thanks for having me on. Dan is a New York-based entrepreneur. He's a consultant and an author. Two books. One is Mastering Account Management, and the other one is the B2B Sales Blueprint. Uh, He's the founder of Sales Schema. That's a company where he helps salespeople, business owners, and account managers with new customers and growing how to get new customers and how to grow their existing accounts. Uh, prior to founding Sales Schema, he was the first employee and senior account manager at Idea Rocket, their, their premier studio for high quality animated explainer videos. And there he brought in business and managed productions for dozens of Fortune 500s and startups like Vimeo. Uh, so on, in this episode, we're going to chat about his journey from working in the corporate world to starting his own business. We're going to talk about revenue generation, how to find new clients, what the best sources of that is. And of course, we'll apply that to looking at it from a small business owner perspective and what have been some of Dan's keys to success. And so that's what we're going to chat about in this episode with Dan. And then I want to read this quote that I found online, Dan, that you Mm -hmm. say, quote, He's a decent, or I'm a, he's a decent living room guitarist, and he makes a mean paella. So, how did you learn how to make paella? Uh, I think an, an ex girlfriend of mine showed me how to do uh-huh. it, and I just sort of perfected it over time. I think. <laughs> so, I like it. I like it because it's one of the few things that I think you can make better at home than any restaurant, just because of the time involved. Ah, good point. So, it's one of my favorites. That's a good point. I usually don't order it, uh, so I'm Cuban by background okay. and Spaniard be behind that uh, grandparents, sure. and so of course it's uh, I have an affinity for it. But okay. to your point, I never, I rarely order it at a restaurant because if where they make it well, it takes forty five minutes to an hour. Exactly. This is kind of uh, impossible for restaurants to, to pull that off. Or even the good places I've gone can't seem to do it as good as, as I can, or probably yeah. you. <laughs> no, I, I don't. I don't make it, which is interesting. Okay. Uh, my grandmother made a good one, and then, of course, when I've gone to Spain, I've indulged, especially a couple. There's this one restaurant in particular in Madrid that I've gone to, and they make it uh, phenomenally. They make yeah. both the regular and the black paella, which has the uh, the tint from the uh, calamari. Yeah, and that's that's different. It's a strong, stronger flavor. But yeah, definitely one of my favorites. Yeah, lots of variations. That's right. That's right. So you are in New York City, correct? I am, yeah, and it's starting to cool down here finally. It's it's nice, so can't complain. What borough are you in? I'm in Brooklyn, yes. Wonderful. Which is nice, more trees. Yeah. yeah. Getting that's, hipper every that's, day. That's right, <laughs> growing fast. It's amazing. Yeah. I was up there at the beginning of the summer before it got too hot because uh, we like going up there. My daughter loves it up there, but, boy, in the middle of the summer, a lot of places don't have much AC, and it, it can be brutal. Yeah, yeah, the blacktop turns everything into an oven. So. Yep, yep. All right, well, let's get into it. I, I want to start uh, where we usually start, Dan, which is in your entrepreneurial journey, because you started, uh, well, let's start, where you, you went to school and studied what? 
I studied history in school. Um, yeah, you know, like I think a lot of people in college, I went to UC Santa Cruz out west and, you know, surfed and kind of hung out and didn't really have a plan. Um, but I'm from the East Coast, from the D.C. area originally. And when I came back, I just, you know, always had a thing for New York, like like you said, you said your daughter does. Um, and I just kind of wanted to be here. And I think summer of 2010, I, I did catering jobs. I had a couple internships, one through a college radio station I worked at in college. It was like a promotions company. And then another one or two through, you know, different networking opportunities and people I had known. And then eventually, like, through those, and uh, I landed a job at an ad agency, a boutique agency. Um, and basically what I was doing there was a lot of, like, managing social media campaigns and copywriting pitching different uh, campaigns to large consumer brands like electronics brands and stuff like that. I uh, did that for about a year and then kind of wanted to do something else. Um, I wasn't sure what. And then kind of through serendipity found a Craigslist ad, you know, of all things, um, wanting basically the first business slash kind of utility role at this animation studio. And it was, you know, a freelancer by the name of Will, Will Gadea who had been in MTV animation for years and kind of struck out on his own and focused on this explainer video niche. And if you're unfamiliar, you know, explainer videos are the sort of archetypal video you'll see on like a startup's homepage describing what they do. And the difference was Will wanted to apply kind of a high quality broadcast animation approach to that based on, on his experience. Um, and he basically wanted to get the sales stuff and some other tasks like off of his plate as soon as possible. So I, you know, I responded to this Craigslist ad. I, I did well enough to win, win the gig. Um, and then I was suddenly tasked with doing sales and then, then a mixture of a million other things because there were just two of us. So I was wearing all these other hats. I was doing the bookkeeping. I was managing projects with clients. I was doing all these other things. And I, I didn't really think of myself as a salesperson. I kind of, like a lot of people, um, I kind of associated sales at that time with something that's like pushy or sleazy or like the movie Glengarry Ben Ross <laughs> or something like that. So I, I kind of resorted to just being an order taker. So I would, you know, get all the information, put together a proposal, and then often, if not usually, never hear back from people, you know. Um, and, and that was, that became a problem because we were investing so much money in ads and doing all these things and you know I definitely hit a low point at which point I knew that I needed to, to learn how to sell and to really take ownership over that role and the pride of, of being a salesperson so you know we got formal I got formal training from a really great trainer named Mike Ganzel here in New York um, read lots of books met with lots of people and then you know kind of turned things around got the sales process dialed dialed in but there were still lots of, of problems because I was split between a million other tasks and I think a lot of small business owners are too so even if they know all the strategies and they practice, you just kind of run out of time because you got to serve clients and you got to put out fires and do all these other things. So, you know, what, what I started doing differently and what kind of started to lead into the business I have now is focusing on less things, you know, carving out time for sales every day and really focusing on account management, which is can be a mix of things, but it's basically winning more business with your existing customers so that you don't have to go out and hustle for the sorts of you know, one-off clients that aren't going to lend themselves well to repeat business. So that's that's kind of my my long story. Yeah, no, it's from, great. from start to finish. Yeah, a lot there that I want to dive into. So I think I'll go from the beginning and and forward. Why did you study history? You know, I I always just kind of had an affinity for it. Um, I, I'm I'm still really into it. I think I tend to think historically more than than in other ways. So yeah, I, I just liked it. I mean, I like I like storytelling and whatnot, and that's basically what what history is. And, and even now, I, I still love history. I, 
Dan Carlin's Hardcore History podcast is probably my favorite. I'm always listening to that. So, so the yeah, story, the storytelling aspect of it is can be key to sales. Do you do you find that to be the case? I think maybe in a roundabout way. I, I think the the main way that it, that it helped me was through writing and being able to communicate things concisely, um, and, and and basically building that that sort of written communication muscle. Uh, I think that's probably helped me in other aspects beyond sales than in sales itself, but there probably are ways that, that it's helped. I think just being able to sort of communicate ideas in less time, it's helped in that way. Because I think that a lot of the times when people are new to sales, they think of it as, as the sort of st- stereotypical image where you're talking a lot and pitching and, and sort of running your mouth <laughs> and trying to, to persuade people. But it's really more about about listening well and, and speaking less and being able to communicate um, certain ideas with less words. So maybe in that way, kind of writing history papers helped. I'm not sure. Well, it, what I meant by it is in, in, in the marketing aspect of it, you have to be able to tell stories well. And right. so I, I wondered if yeah. that translated over for you. Yeah, um, I suppose so. Probably more on the marketing front it came into play. So when you were in college, what, what was your vision for where you were going to go? Did you see yourself as an entrepreneur at some point or was that not what you were thinking then? You know, it's funny. I, I think about that a lot now because I don't think I had any any particular vision like that. I think I more knew what I didn't want to do than what I, than I, what I wanted to do. Um, but I didn't think of myself as that special or that cut out for entrepreneurship at that time. I think I, I assumed everybody kind of thought the same way, like, oh, man, I don't want to end up in some job that I hate, you know, doing the same thing uh, day in and day out. And maybe it'll be fun for a little while and I'll get bored of it. And be So those are sort of the fears I had that I think eventually led to entrepreneurship. So I, I think I was definitely driven more by, by fear than wanting a particular, you know, lifestyle for myself, especially early on in my college years. Mm-hmm. So you said you, you said something there. It's interesting that you, you didn't think you were particularly special or, or I can't quite remember the words, but was you think a lack of confidence that, oh, that entrepreneurs is not something I know how to do? Was that was that part yeah. of it? I mean, I don't know if it was exactly lack of confidence, but I, I think I, my vision of an entrepreneur was somebody like Mark Zuckerberg, like somebody who's invented this thing that's mm. never existed before and brought it to the masses and had this amazing, you know, sort of force of will and creativity. And I didn't really think I had something like that. I think I think also, you know, there was this very like cookie cutter specific image of an entrepreneur that still gets marketed and sold a lot by by VC firms where it's you know, you need to learn how to code, you need to have these like engineering skills and all that, all these sorts of things. And it took me, so I tried to do those things and I, I, you know, I never really had an acumen for it. Um, And I think it took me a while to realize that there's other, other ways to go about it. Fantastic. Yeah, that's, that's well put. So you, you're in your career having some success, doing well, what, what happens that uh, leads you to think about starting your own business? Yeah, I mean, it, it really wasn't, you know, one pivotal moment. I guess if I had to pick one, it was when I had a conversation with a good friend of mine named Mike Fishbein, who's, who's a content expert here in New York and has written, you know, maybe like a half dozen books or more. And I think we were getting drinks or something. And, you know, I, I was already kind of like interested in doing something else and just kind of traveling and taking a break. And he was like, you know, why don't you write a book about what you're doing at Idea Rocket you know, in terms of account management and, and sales and stuff. And I'm just like, I don't know, you know, I've never like I don't think I can write a book. And he's just like, well, you've, you're a history major, you know, you've written theses in college. It's really not a dramatic 
you know, dramatic. It's not really not dramatically more work than that. Um, so, you know, through that, I was like, yeah, maybe this is something that's worth giving a try. And I, I started writing, writing the book and then kind of gradually finished it probably over the course of about six months. And that's my book, Mastering Account Management, which continues to, to do the best. Um, so I think that's kind of how, how I launched the business. And then it was just sort of uh, a progression from there. And it's gone through different manifestations. But that's, that's kind of how I, how I started. It was just by taking that leap and then gradually doing things to support myself while I could kind of build the business. So that included sort of staying with my old company on, on a, um, a lower commitment with a lower commitment offering. So I, I mean, arrangement rather. So I was just handling you know, the sales and then working remotely, which gave me more time to sort of build up the business. So it was sort of a gradual transition to the, to the point where I am now. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, that's, that's, that's a great opportunity you had then to be able to transition that way. Yeah, yeah. But it's one that I, you know, it was definitely scary at the time because at one point I had just quit, you know, and I just had some money saved up. My girlfriend and I just, you know, we, we did the, the digital nomad thing and traveled Asia for, for three months um, and then came back to, to nothing really and sort of like, lived on with parents for a few months and then was like, all right, we need to get back to New York now before we go crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so we moved back and then, and then, you know, things were different, but more or less where I left them. You know, I think it wasn't, it wasn't so bad. It wasn't, it never, the sort of really scary outcomes I envisioned didn't really happen. And I think overall they, they tend to happen less than people think they will. So this is as it relates to launching and going off on your own completely. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, exactly. Can you share with us what one of those scary thoughts were? What what what, what oh. were some of those things that you could share that you thought this could be a really bad thing that could happen? I guess just running out of money, you know, not being able to pay the rent, being stuck in in New York with this giant overhead, um, having to go do a job that I don't really want to be doing, or, or basically ending up in a worse situation than when I left. Because you know, I left a job that I legitimately loved and people that I, I really cared about. It, it was it wasn't leaving because. Um, I was having a bad time there. I just wanted to do something else and kind of do what I'm doing now. Um, so I, th I think that was my biggest fear was just like, you know, am I making this mistake? Am I giving up a good thing? Like a lot of people will probably kill for this this gig. So I think that was the main fear I had. So, so tell me a little bit more about what is it that you were looking for then that the job wasn't giving you? You know, it's it, I don't know what what I was looking for exactly at the time. I think in hindsight, it was it was probably just the the chance to learn new things and grow. I think I had reached a point where I wasn't. It became kind of kind of rote. And although I think there was there there was some continuous learning opportunity because I think in sales there's always that that chance more than other things because you you're kind of incentivized to continue to do better and if you don't then you're going to be in a bad spot or you're not going to be making as much or whatever so but it just there there was just a lot more that I wanted and I think at the time the catalyst for that was wanting to travel you know um but beyond that now it's it's been something completely different and it's really like an opportunity to just sort of learn new things every day and be challenged and whatnot and uh yeah, and and also just and there are some lifestyle benefits too that I enjoy, and just having having more flexibility of time, even if the number of hours I work are sometimes more than I'd ever work in a nine to five. Yeah. All right, Dan. So please, uh, would you introduce to us the the concept uh, that you speak to in the books and in other materials, the repeatable and scalable account management process? What is that at a high level? Right. So it's basically something that you can enact before, during, and after each and every one of your client engagements to ensure or at least you know, increase the likelihood that somebody is going to repurchase. And 
the, I think this is this becomes sort of a no-brainer in some ways because you've already done the hard work, you've done all the marketing, you've generated the lead, you've built the trust, you've got you've built this mutual understanding with your client. But yet, you know, so many companies sort of wave goodbye at the end of each engagement, and we can talk about why that is uh, later. But basically, the process lies on on sort of setting the expectation that there's going to be a chance to continue your involvement with a client from the beginning. So most you know, most companies will sort of lay out a process, like first we're going to have a discovery call, and then we're going to do this, that, and the third, and then we're going to deliver your product, or we're going to, if it's a service, then we're going to aim for this particular goal by a certain time. And then once that thing is achieved or delivered, you know, people will, will often wave goodbye, but instead, it's more about finding ways to sort of stay involved by offering other opportunities to to help and to find new areas of pain, and then offering all sorts of options at the, at the end um, and sort of making it a fluid transition. So that's, that's sort of what it is in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. And what are some of the components that make it repeatable and scalable? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it starts with, with having an exact process that you lay out and by making it sort of defined by certain actions you take in certain meetings. So to get specific, you know, often this means uh, having a debrief call at the end instead of waving goodbye, and it's really that simple. And doing this call at the end of every engagement means that you'll have the chance, and, and doing it a certain way, and basically ensuring that your client is going to get the best results from whatever you delivered is sort of the, the, the kickoff to continuous repeat business. So I think that's that's the first thing is making sure that if you are in terms of making it scalable i think it's first making sure that if you are tasking somebody with managing the relationship that they also are trained in sales and i almost i kind of liken this to the same way that a flight attendant might be trained in first aid or somebody you know a police officer at a big event might be trained in first aid it's sort of like they need to be trained in sales in that way so that when they see opportunities they can pursue them so that's the first thing is making sure that that they can handle that. Um, and then beyond that, laying out this exact process for, for staying involved and basically just re like reigniting the sales process at the end of the engagement instead of just letting people sort of wander off. Mm-hmm. And that I'm assuming that also includes depending on the type of customer or client you have, uh, staying in touch with them, continuing to touch them, whether it's through email, voice meeting, whatever it might be that's appropriate for your client base. It does mean staying in touch, but I think oftentimes people think of that as just like any touch points okay. Like right. you know, if I just send them a Christmas card every year, that that'll be enough. But I I, I think the process should really be made uh, based on relevant touch points. So you can't just hit them up and say how's it going, and that's sort of what most businesses do when they're trying to get business with all their customers. Instead, though, you if you set the expectation that we're going to talk again after the project is over and we're going to learn how you're going to be getting results from this. We're going to learn what you're most worried about. And then we're going to follow up with you in some helpful way based on that. Then all of a sudden you're answering the question, what's in it for them? Um, as opposed to just sort of like following up as an afterthought. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so you're establishing that up front as this is the process we're going to follow together. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and, and what I think um, is important is that, you know, you don't have to think of it as just sort of zero sum. That if you if you can't get them to immediately repurchase your product again or your main flagship service or whatever it may be, then it's all lost. There's all sorts of other ways to stay involved until them repurchasing is the next logical step. 
So, you know, maybe that's that's an ancillary offering that you know they're going to need or some sort of upsell. You know, that's that's an intuitive one. If you're a web design agency, maybe it's SEO services, for example. But if they, even if that's not possible, there's all sorts of, sorts of other ways. There's, you know, case study creation. So then all of a sudden, you know, we want to stay involved so we can gauge your results and create a good case study. Then your success becomes our success. You get a small marketing benefit. We, we get a great case study from you guys. That just further strengthens the relationship. So that's another option. Another one beyond that is is networking referrals. People in your world that you that you you know can help them doing things that you can't do. Mm-hmm. Um, if you if you can help them out in that way, then you're now bringing your customer into your circle and into your sort of like business social life. Um, so that can be really powerful too. So I think that just sort of being creative about the ways that you can be involved. Yeah, that's great. The, the way I look at it from the other side of it as a client of services is I, I have vendors who provide me a transaction, a product, whatever, and then I have partners, and those are the people that give me those additional things, right? It's beyond it's beyond the initial sale. It's where I can use them as a resource, where they're always passing me additional information, and I consider those to be partner vendors, and I think that's right. part of what you're talking about. So why do you think small businesses in particular have a hard time understanding, it doesn't apply to every business, but for Mm -hmm. most businesses that that our existing clients are the best source of new business? Why do you think we struggle with that? Yeah, it's a good question, and there's there's probably different answers for different people. But the one that I've observed, the the couple that I've observed most are, are one that it's kind of awkward to to reapproach somebody that's already purchased from you, and it, it, that's definitely counterintuitive, right? Because everyone associates cold calling and that sort of thing with being the most uncomfortable part of sales. But I think the reality is that becomes very uh, normal and natural pretty quickly. It's much harder to reapproach somebody that you formed this sort of like friendly collegial bond with over the course of an engagement and then ask them to repurchase. So that's one thing. Um, but I think another one that might be, you know, equally, if not more common, is just, it's just overwhelm. Um, it does take work to enact this process. And I think that, you know, in, in the sort of aftermath of, of a long winding, you know, emotionally taxing project, people are just kind of like, yeah, let it be like good riddance. Let's wait a while. Even if it's not a bad thing, it's just, it can just be a lot of work to now like have to go back through the motions again, especially if you're a small business owner. Yeah. You talk about the four stages of generating more revenues from existing customers. Can you introduce that, those four stages? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I definitely had not just small business owners, but basically utility sales players in mind for this. So if you know if you're a full-time salesperson and that's all you do, then some of these steps won't be as applicable. But I think for your audience they definitely are. So the first step is basically finding new time and freedom um, and opening up the bandwidth required to actually to actually do this. And you know, among other things that, that I go into, I think a big thing is keeping a barrier between when you're selling and when you're serving clients and not let people from one group interfere with with the other because you know sales has to be this continuous everyday process to produce results um, and if you're not doing it every day then all of a sudden your pipeline dries up and it's tough to make a deal happen out of thin air as opposed to client service yeah you know you can drop the, a ball or something but ultimately you're going to be able to move heaven and earth to deliver what you need to you know you can delegate it you can get help there's ways to make things happen, but sales takes sort of time and, and your results are based on what you did or didn't do, you know, weeks or months prior. The second step is is winning new customers, but not just that simple, you know, winning the right customers 
I say, you know, go for marriages, not hookups, to use kind of a, a crass, like, romantic metaphor. And I think that a lot of the times business owners will get distracted because they'll have success in one area and then they'll just go on to uh, pursue that without really thinking about it. And instead, there's usually going to be, you know, one or two really high-quality buyer groups or verticals that are going to lend themselves well to repeat business. And the way that I like to identify those is first, like, growth potential. You know, what on a macro level, like, what group is going to be needing a service like yours and it has, like, just sort of money flowing, like, wind in the sails, like, money throwing through it. So, you know, to, to go with the negative, like, if you have a success with a printing press company or something, or printer that may not be a good place to focus your energy because there's only going to be like less money there in the future, presumably. Another one is is just sort of like your unique leverage. Like, do you have a really unique unique ability to solve problems that they and they alone have that other people can't solve? So that that sort of thinking about like the differentiators and stuff. I and mean, the third one is is just ease of sale. You know, if you have to fight an uphill battle and do much education to get somebody on board, even if they're a really great client, then that's not going to be as valuable as somebody that just kind of gets your value right away and is ready ready to buy. So I think honing in on those most valuable buyers and then enacting a, a, a solid sales process, which is, you know, its own thing that I work on, but probably beyond the, the scope of this exact process. The third thing is, you know, over-delivering, deli- delighting your customers, over-delivering, surprising them with additional value. I call this complimentary desserts, sort of like at a restaurant, you know, when you get that ice cream at the end from, from the waiter, you know that he probably did that a few times. It's not that great of a gesture, but it feels good and you don't really care and you're like, it sort of turns you, tips you over the edge into recommending that restaurant later maybe. Um, it really wasn't that much for them to, to extend to you. They didn't cost them that much, but it makes a huge difference. So I think those little sort of additional value surprises are important. Um, and the fourth thing is, is account management. You know, sort of what we talked about earlier, enacting this fluid follow-up process that leads to repeat business, like sort of learning about other challenges they have and then posing options beyond just you know your main flagship offering. Great. Thanks for explaining that. And and I have not had an opportunity, Dan, to read your books. Which one or both of the books do you cover this process? Mastering Account Management uh, goes through this process, I think, more specifically um, in sort of a bite-sized way because I've sort of honed it to these four steps more recently and Mastering Account Management does it from more of a um, it's almost like a chicken soup for the small business owner or account manager soul style style book, but it basically covers these concepts in a different way. Fantastic. And we'll have links to both of the books in our show notes page and our listeners can find that at thehowofbusiness.com. So summarize for me how you sell your services. Is it one-on-one coaching? Is it workshops? Is it both? How do you deliver your services? Uh, one-on-one coaching is is the main thing I do, but the other thing that that I'm focusing on a lot now too as well uh, is an online course and and we called um, Million Dollar Account Manager, but I'm actually rebranding it pretty soon more towards sales because um, I think it really is a sales course that has an account management component because those two things kind of you know exist together. Uh, and what I like about that is I think lots of small business owners would just kind of prefer to try their hand at things first before um, hiring on somebody to, to kind of guide them along. Uh, so it, it allows me to sort of, you know, have a choose-your-own-adventure style approach to, to my audience. And uh, and then the course ends up coming into play with the consulting, so instead of, uh, or with the coaching rather, um, so that I can 
I can show people particular modules when certain situations come up and then kind of give them homework like I'm uh, a terrible high school teacher or something. (laughs) What, what has worked well for you in finding new clients? Yeah. I mean, I think a a number of things and everything's an experiment, you know, and and so there's, there's different things I've observed though from that. Um, and the main thing is just avoiding shiny object syndrome and not getting too obsessed with any particular or getting too overwhelmed with too many strategies at once. I think for me, it's finding, you know, one or two outbound things, strategies, and one or two inbound. So for outbound, you know, I think early on referrals and just people that are already in my world were helpful in kind of developing that initial client base. Um, And more recently, it's been targeted LinkedIn outreach to basically just go for as many consultations as I can, just landing conversations with people. Um, On an inbound level, uh, I'm basically going for the stuff where there is a ceiling, the stuff that doesn't scale very well in the beginning. And this is a book that we can talk about later, but Gabriel Weinberg's Traction was really helpful in this. Um, so, you know, that's included my books. Uh, people opt in from, from the books a lot. So that's, that's helpful. Podcasts like this one um, and, and guest posts, which is kind of exists in the same world. But, not, but beyond that, it's not a lot more. You know, that, those, are, those are the few that I'm focusing on. And What's great about those is that there's sort of this authority component built into it and you know, you're teaching people stuff and they're getting to understand your, your, your approach. So I think so that's why I've chosen those channels. Yeah, that's great. The consulting that you talk about with Outbound, you do a free consulting session. Is that one of the strategies or tactics, um, I should say? Not as much. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll usually, yeah, I'll have one free consulting session with people and kind of let them know, um, you know, what, what's involved and just kind of, yeah. So I guess you're right. It is, it does kind of boil down to one free consulting session, but usually I just kind of getting as many of those conversations as I can throughout right. that. Yeah. Sure. Okay. And what about webinars? Cause I believe you're using webinars as a sales funnel as well. What is that feeding? Is that feeding the online yeah. program? Yeah, exactly. So, so the webinars will feed into the course, um, and I, you know, I give away a portion of the of the course for free in the webinar, basically, to give people a feel for it. So, I, you know, it's an experiment now. I don't know if I'm gonna, if I'm going to keep on it forever. I think, and I'm by far not the webinar expert. <laughs> There's many people uh, that know a lot more about that than I do. Uh, I think the the upside is like like I said earlier, it kind of does allow people to get to know you. Um, you can make a really compelling pitch that's that's kind of higher pressure and you can do teaching i think the downside is that it's a it's a big time obligation for people so i think you tend to get less opt-ins than if you just gave away like a free report or something like that mm. so it's, it's definitely a quality over quantity approach yeah so you've used that lead magnet approach of giving away something free and that's worked well as well oh absolutely yeah i think i think all you know all, all lead magnets will kind of have to rest on that that mm. concept it's so, valuable What's, as far as webinars go, what's been one of the good sources of leads uh, to opt into the webinar? What's worked well? Um, I, I think uh, my books. So people will end up kind of opting in for resources for my books and then sort of be, get email updates that will go to the webinar. So that's helped a lot. And then, you know, I think podcasts like this, uh, just sort of people going to my homepage from finding me here, um, that's worked well. And then and guest posts. So basically the inbound channels I talked about earlier, a lot of them will just drive to where the webinar lives, which is the homepage. Yeah, that's great. All right. I want to ask about uh, some of the keys to your business success. If you look back at it now, one or two things that stand out that you think have been instrumental in your success in business? 
Yeah, I mean, I think developing that authority platform, you know, in the form of a book earlier on did, you know, had huge benefits that I could never have predicted. Um, I think at the time when, when I started writing it, it wasn't, I wasn't that smart. It wasn't strategic or anything. I feel like I, I was good enough to follow good advice. I got advice and I, it sounded good, so I followed it and just sort of focused on, on writing the book. So I think that's one of them. I think the second one was finding a community. Um, I think by far that's uh, that's the best decision I've made um, for getting feedback and accountability. You know, and there's there's the networking group I'm, I'm I'm in that's been really helpful, and then just from that, I have a small core of other entrepreneurs here in New York that I, I meet with, you know, a few times a week, because otherwise, running a business can become very isolating, and I don't even want to think about you know where my business would be if I hadn't have done that, if I just kind of stayed in my in my office all day or something. So. Um, those two things together, I think, were were huge for me. Yeah, that's great. On the, I want to go back to sales. You had mentioned, obviously, you didn't go to school, you didn't study sales in school, and then you learned on the job, and then you got some formal training. What do you think, looking back now, is one thing that you learned along the way that, that's been really helpful in making you better at sales? I think um, asking good questions, you know, and being genuinely curious about the people I'm talking to has probably been the most important thing. Uh, I, I think a lot of trust gets built from from that and from, you know, the questions you ask as opposed to just the way that you pitch or present your offering. So I think that's been the, the biggest takeaway so far. And then from there, you know, um, just nailing down next steps and follow-ups and making it, making them sort of to the person's benefit as opposed to just selfish. I think that that's another common problem that I've learned from uh, that I've, I've observed with salespeople is a lot of the times what they ask of their prospects is completely for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, so to, to, to pose something that is going to be to your prospect's benefit does involve creativity and, and, and some, some thinking on your feet. So I think keeping those muscles strong and focusing on, on that, you know, has, has been like one of the most helpful things I've, I've taken on. Yeah, that's great advice. Um, all right, we'll start to wrap this up, Dan. We talked about books. Uh, well, first of all, on your two books, for the small business owner who's listening, which one of the two should they start with? Um, I think Mastering Account Management is a better starting point because it's focused more on how to actually balance your time between sales and client service and kind of getting to that baseline before you overwhelm yourself. And then is there a book you've read recently? You mentioned Traction, I believe, uh, that one mm-hmm. or another book that you'd recommend to our audience. Yeah, there's a few. So Traction, if you're, if you're looking to do inbound and get people coming to you, I think Traction is a great starting point. Um, uh, for outbound, I think Predictable Revenue by Aaron Ross is a classic. That's, that's you know, beyond helpful. And I think a really you know, um, fundamental sales book that I love is Spin Selling by Neil Rack, which was written in the 80s and I think was one of the first to really be grounded in lots of data and lots of you know, quantitative uh, analysis and stuff. And it basically confirms what people know now and what other books have confirmed that you know, it's really more about qualifying and asking good questions and building this rapport as opposed to just you know, being a used car salesman. So. <laughs> yeah. Great. Thanks for those recommendations. We'll have links to all of those, including your books, on the show notes page. And our listeners can find that at thehowofbusiness.com. And I just wanted to say, if, if you know listeners would like to check out Mastering Account Management, I, I, I I'm giving it away for a limited time to um, to certain podcasts I'm on right now. So if they go to saleschema.com/slash/the-how-of-business, they can actually grab it there. Fantastic! That's a great offer. And again, we'll have a link to that on the show notes page of the How of Business. So thanks for offering that. 
My pleasure. All right, last question for you. Last parting piece of advice for our our audience based on your experience as a business owner. I think the number one thing is to to identify and start strengthening those relationships with your your top, you know, two to three most valuable buyer groups. Um, and think about ways you can do that earlier. And and I know that's very specific, kind of boring advice. So I think the the more interesting, you know, kind of ephemeral advice would be don't don't get distracted, calm down and focus on on the things that are really going to matter as opposed to just reading about strategies and shortcuts and that sort of thing. Is there a, a way that you tactically apply that every day, with like a a technique or a tool that you use to keep you focused? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I, this by far is an original advice, but I think journaling has been really helpful for me um, and just kind of planning out my day that way before I do anything else and just kind of having a free writing exercise in the morning and, and not jumping right into my inbox has been really helpful. And beyond that, you know, I, I like personally to get my information from my friends who are entrepreneurs and the, and also through books as opposed to articles and things that are going to link off a million places. And that might be an argument to my own detriment because I put out articles online. But uh, <laughs> but I, I like that because it kind of hones my energy and gives me more of a conceptual understanding than getting than sort of like this buffet of information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I appreciate that. So, Dan, where can folks go to find out more about you and your business? Uh, saleschema.com is, is my home base where I'm testing things out and, and doing things. So <laughs> that's the best place. Fantastic. And we'll have a link to that as well. So Dan, thanks for spending this time with us and sharing this valuable info and for the free download offer as well. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Henry. Appreciate it. Folks, thank you for listening to this episode of The How of Business. If you're listening to us on iTunes, we would welcome and thank you for subscribing to our show. And we look forward to having you on the next episode of The How of Business. Thank you for listening to The How of Business with David Begin and Henry Lopez. We hope you found practical ideas to help you start, manage, and grow your business. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave a comment on iTunes and go by LevanteBusinessGroup.com and learn more about Levante's resources to help you with your small business. Until next time, thanks for listening and go live your dream.